Okay, um, <clears throat> we are going to be in the Bible, yay, uh, on page 224. Uh, these Bibles on the backs of the seats are um, what we're going to be reading out of. It's ESV. If you don't have a Bible, uh, this is your gift from us. We want you to have God's Word ready and available um, for you. So if you don't have it, take it with you. If you know a friend that needs it, take it with you. All right. So we're going to be reading from Ezra 8, starting in 24. Priest to guard offerings. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all of Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talons of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talons and 100 talons of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of our fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. It's life. In fact, Jesus, you said that your words are spirit and their life. And so, Lord, we thank you for the life that we receive from your word, and we ask that you would um, just be glorified through the preaching of it this morning, and that you would uh, begin to do even more of a transforming work in us. Lord, some of us have been uh, being transformed, some of us for days or weeks or months or even many years and decades, Lord, but we pray that your word would not uh, fail to work what it does in us, Lord, that we would be transformed by it. Lord, there's other people here who have not yet begun to be transformed by the truth of your gospel, the truth of your word. And Lord, our greatest, most earnest desire is that they today would find uh, the the life that really is life in you today, Christ. And so we we pray that you would just help us and and um, and be with us. Lord, help me as Narcy already prayed, Lord, to speak. Um, clearly and accurately the word of the Lord God and to not allow um, the, the transmission of your word to be polluted or corrupted by this often failing human vessel, Lord. So I thank you for all of your goodness and I just uh, release this service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, you guys look good this morning. Have you enjoyed uh, the service so far and worship and communion and been a good morning, hadn't it? So uh, I chose a text this morning from the book of Ezra, and I'm willing to bet that at least a third of you didn't even know Ezra was a book in the Bible. So 
Um, Ezra is paired in the Bible with Nehemiah. They're both written in the same time period concerning the same events. And what we have here is, we've talked about this before, how God's people, because of their idolatry and spiritual adultery, had been punished by God, sent into exile into Babylon, and they stayed there for 70 years. God had actually told them that they didn't just get released by the by luck. God had told them before, many years before they even went, that they would be there for 70 years. So Ezra and Nehemiah are, are written, and the stories that they tell are told about the time that that 70 years is coming to a close, or has come to a close. So they tell the story of the Jews that were exiled to Babylon and how they return home. And Nehemiah tells us the story. We're not talking about that today, but just to give you some perspective, it talks about how he had discovered that the walls of Jerusalem, this once great citadel, were completely broken down. They were dilapidated. And, and how he went and, and, and recruited men to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Well, Ezra is very similar. It speaks of the restoration of the temple, uh, which was central to Jewish life. And um, the, the reason the temple needed to be restored is because Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had absolutely ransacked it 70 years previous to this story. So Ezra himself was a priest of of Israel, and, and uh, he was allowed to return to Jerusalem to restore the priesthood. To Once the temple was being restored, to restore the, the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And he was allowed to do this by King Artaxerxes of Persia. Now, um, you might say, well, I thought you said the Babylonians defeated or, or took uh, captive the, the nation of Israel. They did. But in 539, the Persians conquered Babylon. So in chapter 8, where we were today... Ezra plans to travel to Jerusalem with some priests to help teach the statutes of God to the returning Jews that are coming there. And but but when he when he starts to look at who he's got to go with him, he discovers that there are no Levites present. Now now I know some of you are saying, "Huh?" You know, so what what does that matter? What does that mean? Well, you might recall that the tribe of Levi was the was the one of the twelve tribes of Israel that was entrusted um, with the work of assisting the priests. That's the whole reason for the existence of the tribe of Levi. They they assisted the priests. Now all priests came from the tribe of Levi, but all Levites were not priests. The only ones who were priests were the ones who descended from Aaron. Uh, who was Moses' brother. Are your heads blowing up yet? Are you, you following me? Stay with me. Just track with me. We're going somewhere. I promise. Or I hope. I bet you hope even harder. But Ezra searched and he found 28 Levites among this remnant that was left in Babylon, along with 220 other servants for the temple work that, that David had consecrated. And after spending some time at the banks of a river, praying and fasting for God's favor and, their, and his protection, they set off on their long journey home after seven long decades. So here is where, I, I give you all that background, here's where we're beginning the story today. This is what Narcy read to us. At the point that she began to read, a massive offering of precious metals has been collected. Part of it's been given by King Artaxerxes, some of it uh, by others, but it's, it's specifically for the Jews, for the work of the temple. 
The silver that they collected, there was a lot of like archaic measurements in the, in that text we read. And, and, but I don't want you to gloss over those. The, the, basically, let me break it down for you. The silver that they collected weighed 25 tons of silver. In addition to that, there were three and three quarters tons of gold. Now, in today's dollars, I, I looked it up on Google and got my calculator out. And in today's dollars, the value of that offering would be in, in excess of two hundred and fifty million dollars. This was not this was not passing the hat. Okay, this was a big uh, freight transfer of precious metals. It was a major operation, and that's why they prayed on the banks of that river for God's protection. Now, this trip from Babylon to Jerusalem would have been about five hundred and fifty miles. Now, think about that: five hundred and fifty miles. There was not Southwest Airlines. There wasn't even Greyhound, and nobody had a Ford or a Chevy. That trip of 550 miles was going to be taken either on foot or on the back of a donkey or a camel. So this group, traveling under such conditions with such a heavy and precious load of freight, might be threatened by bandits. Can you imagine that that might happen, traveling through the desert with a bunch of gold? They might be threatened by bandits. So God's protection to them was absolutely vital for their success. Now, they could have, uh, uh, Ezra says this earlier, that they could have asked King Artaxerxes for a military escort. They could have. In fact, we find that Nehemiah actually did have a military escort. But these guys, these priests, declined to ask for that. Because they had already, in the presence of the king, boasted about the reputation of Israel's God. Listen, I can't say it as good as Ezra, so let me just read it to you what he says. He says, for, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. They made a pretty big boast about God's power. And so now they were not going to make God look bad by declining that boast. They were going to, they were going to trust him to protect them and not the Persian army. So they chose to trust the power of God. They knew that he protects those who undertake to do his will. And so let me just add this first little application in there. If we are among people, and I think most of you are, who make the claim that we're followers of God, we must be people who trust everything to His goodness. We have to be. We don't have an option as I see it. So Ezra weighs out this massive offering to 12 of the priests, and he divides responsibility among them. This is what he says. He says, you, talking to the priests, you are holy to the Lord. The vessels are holy. The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. And so Ezra is pointing out that by virtue of their calling, by virtue of, of what, from what they have come, the priests have been set apart by God. That's what the word holy means. They're set apart. He reminds them that, that as holy priests that they're consecrated to God. But the free will offering, he says, is also holy. And for the same reason, it has been consecrated to God. And it's to be used for his purposes. It's to bring glory to his great name. So Ezra 
gives them solemn instructions. He says, guard them, these, these items of silver and gold. He says, guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites at the heads of the father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. The priests and the Levites are, have one mission. They have one task. They are to guard this treasure, even with their lives if necessary. It, this is because both they, both the priests and the offering, are holy. See, this is a, a common misunderstanding among uh, uh, Christ-following people. These guys, these priests, were not called simply to be mouthpieces for the Jewish nation. They weren't simply called even to be its religious leaders, the big shots, the head honchos in charge. They were to be guardians of what God had declared sacred. Now bookmark that. That's going to become very important later. So Ezra tells them that at the end of their long journey, there's going to be an accounting. And, and when that accounting happens, the scales had better balance. What was entrusted to them in Babylon must safely travel all the way to Jerusalem. If it's stolen by thieves, or if it's pilfered by the priests themselves, they will be held accountable. The Bible tells us that the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. So with determination, steadfast diligence, steadfast vigilance, The priests and the Levites delivered this treasure to God's house, this newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, their ancestral homeland. So as I read this passage this week, it just kind of stood out to me. I saw immediate applications for the lives that you and I are living some, you know, 2,500 years later in history, I saw immediate applications for the lives that we're presently living for Christ Jesus. And there are many ways that this story that seems just kind of tucked in there that you may not have seen any spiritual benefit from, there's many ways that this story concerns us. First of all, at the very get-go, as Christians, we have to understand the nature of priesthood. Priests are tasked with doing a few things. First of all, they represent God. And they communicate His will to the people to whom they're sent. They also mediate between God and the same people. That's why Jesus is called our great high priest, because He made intercession to the Father for us. So the question For today, the question that I want you to answer, the first question that is, is this. Who are the priests in the church? Now some might guess that it's guys like me. It's pastors or it's elders or other church leaders. But Peter, in his first epistle, he tells us that all of us who have called on the name of Jesus as our Savior, all of us comprise a holy, a royal priesthood. And a royal priesthood that is literally, it's called, he says, to show forth the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
So we represent God, first of all, as priests, by influence. That means by being, as Jesus said, by being salt and by being light in this generation and by making the will of the Father known by preaching the gospel. That's how we represent God. But we're also mediators. Now, we're not the mediator, only Jesus. The Bible says there's one mediator. But we mediate between God and man in much the same way. I read this scripture to you in a different context a couple weeks ago, but I want to read it again. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you then, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is that saying? It's saying that we live in the midst of a world that is absolutely alienated from God by sin. And we, you and I, are the ones who have been called to stand between God and man, between sinners and a holy God, and announcing to them the good news of the gospel that says you can be reconciled to God. If you're a believer... And I hope you are. And if you're not, I hope you will be. But if you're a believer, you must be part of that royal priesthood. The priesthood is not for those who want to be a part of that. It's not for those who want to lead. It's not for those who want a title. If you are a believer, you have been anointed, you've been called, you've been consecrated, you've been set apart, you've been declared holy to be a priest of God. You're not just a follower of a religion. You're not just someone with fire insurance to escape hell. You're not even just a churchgoer. You are a representative of the holy and almighty God mediating his message to a fallen world. And I ask you this morning, do you do that honorably? Do you do it faithfully? Do you do it with commitment? Do you do it with a serious heart? Why would I say that? Because some people claim loudly to be servants of God. But upon inspection, their lives are indistinguishable from the lost. They desire the same things. They act the same way. They respond to offenses and injuries in the same way that the perishing world does. See, but the priests in the Old Testament, those who were consecrated, were required to be different. They even wore garments that were branded with these words, holy to the Lord. They were, they were to stand apart from that which was common. And let me let you in on a little secret. Turn your ear in close to me for just a minute. God expects his new covenant priesthood to be holy as well. Let me give you just one quick, easy, simple example from the scriptures. Philippians chapter 2. Paul gives us this word. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And all of you have obeyed the word this week, right? (laughs) Every one of you, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, No grumbling, no disputing, correct? That's what I thought. But why? Is this just a rule? Is this just a, uh, you know, some kind of do this, don't do that type of thing? No, this is why he says, he gives us a great reason. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God 
without blemish, in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul is saying, be different. So people can notice you and turn to the God you serve. I think that reminds me of something Jesus said. He said, let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works. And then what will they do? They will glorify your Father in heaven. So ask yourself this morning. I can't say it for you. You can't say it for me. Ask yourself, am I shining like a light? Am I blazing with the glory of God for people to see and turn their attention to Jesus? Or am I hidden away in the same darkness, no matter what my mouth proclaims, am I hidden away in the same darkness that this whole world is held hostage by? See, the standard for priests of God is that you come out from among them and be separate from the world. And this becomes vitally, vitally more important. It's important anyway, but it becomes vitally more important when we discover that the salvation that we have received from Jesus Christ is a treasure. It's a treasure of vast, incalculable worth. Treasure. More precious than gold, silver, diamonds, rubies. None can compare to the pressure, to the, to the treasure that we have received from Jesus Christ. It's much like the one that was entrusted to the priests and the Levites in the time of Ezra. But this treasure, I cannot state it strongly enough, is infinitely more valuable. Thinking these same types of thoughts, Paul says this, but we, the believers, the followers of Christ, have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Can I just point out something to you? A terracotta pot is a terrible place to store treasure. Lousy. I hope that if you're keeping your vast fortune stuffed in the bottom of a flower pot, that no one ever finds that out. Because they're going to get it. But this treasure that Paul is referring to, if you read the few verses before this, it's the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not just to know that he lived and he died and none of the facts. It's the knowledge, the knowing of Jesus Christ. The intimate sharing of life with Jesus Christ. It's to know his power. It's to know his glory. But as I said, it's it's the oddest part of this passage. This treasure isn't stored in a vault. It's not guarded by armies. We carry this treasure Think about the absurdity of this, folks. We carry this treasure in a jar of clay. Think about that. Who designed this system? Oh, yeah. God did. Jars of clay, it's bodies of flesh, frail, faulty, and often stumbling. 
But there's a reason for this, Paul says. It's so we can demonstrate that our faith is not in what I can do or you can do for me. My faith is what Jesus Christ has already done. It is finished. So here I am. I'm a little teapot. Brittle clay pot. And yet, somehow in the vast wisdom of God, I'm carrying this incredible treasure. No one, no army, no vault, just me. My little terracotta pot carrying this vast treasure and I'm showing the world in the words of Ezra, that the hand of our God is for good or for salvation on all who seek him. It's God that saves and keeps us to the end. But though this is true, the Bible calls us, we're called over and over again in scriptures, to diligently guard the treasure from all ungodly assaults. Our heart, or, or you might say our soul, is the target. It's got a big bullseye on it for all the fiery darts of the enemy. Our heart, when I say our heart, I'm not talking about the the muscle that pumps blood. I'm talking about that part of our being that is comprised of our thoughts, our will and decisions and our, our emotions. And what Satan wants to do is he wants to shatter the fragile clay so that the treasure inside is jeopardized. Remember, according to Paul... I want you to make sure that you have a distinction here. This treasure is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the experience of Jesus Christ. So what is in jeopardy is not necessarily our salvation, but our confidence and our faith that Jesus is strong, that Jesus is beautiful, and that Jesus is enough. That's where the devil wants to crack the pot. Where you won't believe anymore that Jesus is strong. Where you won't believe anymore that Jesus is beautiful. And where you won't believe anymore that Jesus is enough. How does he do that? The the devil magnifies your problems so you forget the, the infinite power of Jesus that is living, resident inside you right now. He penetrates your heart so that you are deceived and you believe that the desires of your flesh are more beautiful than Christ. And he points to what the world holds out and offers so that you feel like something is lacking, even though you have Jesus. All of these thoughts together prompted Solomon to write in the Proverbs this Powerful little scripture. You should all memorize it. It says, above all else. When somebody says above all else, you better pay attention. This is the big thing. This is what I want you to do. It says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Priority one, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. The King James Version says, says, keep your heart with all diligence. Because here's what I want you to know. An unguarded heart will certainly be corrupted. It will not long after be polluted if it's unguarded. The priests in Ezra's time 
Think about this. They were living in a foreign land. They were given a treasure. They were tasked with delivering it safely to God's house in a faraway land. And their journey would be filled with peril. Enemies would show up that would try to take the treasure that was committed to their care. So they have to keep their eyes on the horizon and they have to keep their hands on their swords. The lazy or the apathetic priest would be filled with shame if he arrived in Jerusalem with some or even all of his treasure missing from the portion allotted to him. See, you and I live in a world, if you believe what the New Testament says, and I hope you do, you and I live in a world that as believers is foreign to us. I said it a couple weeks ago, this ain't home. We're traveling, we're journeying, but this ain't it. This isn't where we throw down our tent. We're still moving. Amen? This world is foreign to us. It's not our home. But but we have to travel through it on the way to our true and lasting homeland. We've been tasked with carrying our priceless knowledge of Jesus Christ. And with it, our growing sanctification safely to our homeland, where one day we will cast it down as crowns before our Savior's feet one day in worship. But we got to get it there first. We got to get it there first. And on our journey, let me just tell you i hadn't figured out this yet i'm sure you have but on our journey we're going to have some enemies three in particular and and their main desire their their driving passion is to crack the jar of clay and take or deplete what's been given to you first there's the world it distracts us that's the goal of the world, so that, so that it can persuade us to trade the inner eternal treasure so that we can acquire their fading, passing little playthings. Huh, I wish that was the only problem, but then there's the flesh. That's me. It fills us with desires for pleasure and for stuff and for status so that I'll pursue immediate gratification instead of waiting for the greater and eternal reward. And then there's the devil. The devil constantly discourages us by telling us the journey's too long and the task is too hard. And he accuses us constantly. And he tries to convince us that God's love could never ever be granted to someone like you. And that even if you complete this trip, all you're going to find is a scowling God slamming the door in your face. But I got good news. None of that is true. See, God's treasure is far more valuable than any so-called wealth this world will ever offer you. In fact, anything that you do sacrifice, anything that you give up in this life for the sake of your eternal inheritance, it's never lost, it's only invested. Anything. And the devil... Jesus made it clear in John chapter 8, he is a liar and cannot speak anything but lies. And you, as one who Jesus did not spare anything to save, you are one that can trust in the love, support, and acceptance of your Father to see you safely all the way home. So how does somebody guard their heart? As Solomon told us, see, many Christians 
worry only about their actions. I did this or I did that. Worry about what they do. But I wanted to just point out to you that all actions, every single one of them, good and bad, all of them begin in the heart. All of them. Think about that. If Eve had not listened to the serpent's lies and embraced them in her heart, she never would have plucked that fruit off the tree. She had to let her heart be corrupted before her actions were corrupted. Jesus put this beautifully, as always, in, John, in Luke chapter 6. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, listen to this carefully, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside of you is going to come out eventually. So we have to pay close attention to what we're allowing to be deposited in us. Let me give you a couple just quick examples. We live in a screen-dominated world. Now, I'm not Amish. My phone is right here. I'm rarely found within more than three or four feet away from it. I, 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 but any of us, none of us rather, would say that the majority of stuff that we're getting from our screens is spiritually beneficial to us in any way. Never before have we had more distracting amusements at our fingertips. Some of them are seemingly harmless, like but incredibly time-wasting, like all the video games and the YouTube and all that stuff. But there's also soul-killing poisons on our devices, like the pornography that is more easily obtained than at any other time in history. I wish, though... So we throw out our phones and you'll be fine. No, 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 no. I wish guarding our hearts was as easy as disconnecting. I really do. I would get rid of my phone in a heartbeat. But sometimes... What I put in myself is just as damaging. I put things like worry, things like doubt, things like fear and unbelief, and they wreak havoc on all of our hearts because they fly in the face of God's truth. And we also speak horrible things to each other. Terrible things. And, and sometimes we even speak horrible things to ourselves. So, so we got to get rid of our phones and, and we also have to attempt to have more healthy self-talk and eliminate negative people from our lives. Oh wait, that still wouldn't be enough. Get rid of our devices and get rid of negative people. See, you can tell yourself you're good enough, you're smart enough, doggone it, people like you all day long. You can meditate thinking happy thoughts in the lotus position all day long, and you can still lose your treasure. What we need, what we need is more of the knowledge of Jesus. That's what we need. That's the treasure that we're carrying. Now, did you understand what I just did there? The the knowledge of Jesus is the treasure we're carrying and we need more of it. So the treasure that we're guarding is actually guarding us. 
We fortify the knowledge of Jesus only in one way, by turning our ear to his word and actually obeying what he said. This is what Moses meant when he told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life. He's your treasure and your length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. See, life has been set before us in Christ Jesus. And yet death through sin is always waiting to lure us with false promises, false promises and empty hopes. So what will you choose? May I plead with you this morning, choose life that you and your children will live loving, obeying God, holding fast to Him as He holds fast to you. Life is only found at the cross. So the place of death is where life begins for us. This means that As we die to ourselves, our desires, our agenda, this world, the approval of others, this treasure grows bigger and brighter. Paul calls this treasure that life that truly is life. It's interesting that he says that in 1 Timothy when he's comparing spiritual treasure to worldly wealth. God's word builds up our defenses against the bandits of the world, the flesh of the devil, the world, like nothing else can. David said, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But the Bible is not just a defensive weapon, but an offensive one as well. Paul says we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Just like the priests, pay careful attention here, just like the priests in Ezra's day, there will be an accounting or how we handled the Lord's treasure. Let me say that again, because you guys think you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, don't have to worry about much else before that. No, 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 no. Paul, in agreeing with Ezra, makes it clear, there will be an accounting one day for how you handled the treasures of the Lord in that jar of clay. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, beginning, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. In other words, it will be shown for what it is, for the day will disclose it. That's day with a capital D. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, they'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I don't want to suffer loss on that. What a great day of glory it will be to deliver this treasure to the house of the Lord, eternal in the heavens. There, the knowledge of Christ that I've carried all these years will be transformed into into eternal praise 
and eternal joy. So listen to me. The beginning of the year 2020 gives you a great opportunity to recommit yourself to guarding your heart and protecting the treasure that God himself has placed within you. Remember what the treasure is. It's the knowledge, the intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. The treasure is not your goodness. Because I guarantee if you try to protect your goodness, you're going to lose your treasure this afternoon. (laughs) It's not your goodness. It's not even your potential. But it's the saving and sanctifying knowledge of Christ who keeps you and empowers you. There's no way for the Christian to guard his or her heart except through the cleansing power of God's word. What does that mean? You must read it. You must study it. You must love it. And you must live in it. If you neglect it, if you abandon it, you do that to the jeopardy of your own soul. Let's pray this morning that God will send his wisdom, conviction, and endurance that we can finish our journey through this world all the way to his eternal house in our true heavenly homeland where we will dwell with him in eternal praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. The Lord, though we're just clay pots, you have entrusted to us your holy treasure, Lord, the the, the treasure of unspeakable worth, Lord, in, in Jesus. And so, God, I ask you, Lord, that you would just help us to have a heart to guard it, Lord. When inputs come in, whether they're through the voice of our enemy, the voice of someone else, the voice of ourself, the things that we absorb through media and entertainment, whatever they are, God, we pray that you would cause a conviction to rise in us that we can guard our hearts above all else, above all else, Lord. Help us, frail, weak, brittle pots, Lord, as we journey towards the house of the Lord, where our, 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 our treasure will be laid out and weighed by you, Lord. We long for that day. Make us ready, make us able. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we let you go, you guys, uh, we've been talking to you about this for a few weeks. Today is our uh, missions offering. If we could have our ushers come. And um, we uh, we do this once a quarter. And um, our, this offering um, actually uh, is for the... Um, uh, the missionaries that we support around the world, we support missionaries in Guatemala, in Austria. We uh, a ministry of called SportQuest that supports mission, uh, sports-based mission all over the world. They have a dramatic impact with uh, with young people um, through soccer and basketball and things like that. And then we also support locally uh, Ebenezer Theater and Ragtown Gospel Theater. And so um, I say this four times a year on this day. This is the most important thing you can do with your money. And this is, this is a, a place for you to say, because of my perception of the value of the, of the treasure that Christ has given me, I'm going to give back some of my treasure in the form of my finances for something. This is not a, that's not to twist your arm or put any guilt trip on you. Listen, 100% of this goes to missions and not a penny out of our regular budget. 
This all goes to missions. So uh, the only way that we support our missions is if we support them through you. So I'm going to ask everybody in this room to prepare whatever offering you can, be it small, be it large, hopefully large, and uh, we're going we're gonna to meet the, uh, this need. We, every quarter we're committed to giving $6,000. Today we need to raise about $2,200, $2,300 to uh, complete this task. And um, uh, if we are fortunate enough, like we have a few times, to raise over what we need, then we'll just apply it to next quarter's offering. We don't redirect that money ever. It always goes to missions. So um, I'm going to just give you a second. I'm going to give you about 15 seconds of silence so that you can ask the Lord. Don't assume that you already know what you're going to give. Ask the Lord. He may want to stretch your faith this morning. So ask the Lord what he wants you to give, and, um, and then I'll pray over it, and the ushers will receive the offering. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to partner with you in the work of reaching the world, God. God, you could do this without us, and yet you've chosen to allow us to put our time, to put our resources, to put our our hearts, our prayers, Lord, and sometimes even our lives uh, into the work of mission, Lord. So God, we don't want to do this just like Pastor David said over the the communion. We don't want to do this as just some kind of thing on our church calendar, Lord. We want to, to understand that we may be giving the gift that ushers people into heaven through what it's able to do through our missionaries, Lord. And so, God, we ask that you would enable us, like never before, to have a literal spiritual gift of generosity, Lord. That we would give, um, not till it hurts, but give till we begin to laugh. We would give hilariously, Lord, and joyfully, because we're, we're building your kingdom through this gift, Lord God. Lord, I pray that you would uh, squelch all fear and all greed, that if, if someone were, were hesitant or withholding, Lord, I pray that you would just squelch that and let them know the joy, the delight of being a giver in your kingdom, Lord God. I thank you for this, Lord Jesus. Just finish uh, through the generosity of your people what we have committed to these people so that no one goes without, that there is no lack, Lord God. We thank you for your provision. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll receive this offering, and then when we're done, I'll uh, say a quick benediction over you, and then we'll release you to go. If you want to give online, there's a drop-down to designate to missions. Please make sure you designate to missions, or it probably won't go there, So just because we won't know that that's what you intended. So if you're giving cash or check in this offering, we'll know it, because uh, we don't generally take up offerings. But um, if you're doing it online, please make sure and designate it to missions. All right, if you would stand with me, I'm going to read a real quick benediction over you. So if you would place your hands, as is our tradition, in the receiving position. And I'm going to read uh, the the ironic blessing that we've talked about before over you. And, and as I always encourage you, don't just, you know, hear this and run out the door and go to the cafeteria <laughs> I want you to let these words just wash over you. Dave, uh, God told Aaron when he read this over the people that he was actually putting his name in the people. It's the power of these words because they're the words of God. The Bible says, The Lord bless you, yes, you, and keep you. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the church said, Amen. You're dismissed.